We come now to our next topic, which I've titled, Toys, TV, and Technology, Recovering Family Time That Leads to Worship. Raising children today for many parents often seems like an almost impossible challenge. We're tempted to believe this, not because our kids are necessarily different from any other children in history, but because we think that the world seems so much like an impenetrable enemy that we do not stand a chance against. You're simply trying to survive it versus thrive in it. Believing this often leads parents feeling defeated and seeing raising kids like a roller coaster. You don't necessarily like riding it, but you don't know how to get off of it. You just have to survive it. Others perhaps almost become superstitious, believing that if you do certain actions, you'll produce certain results, like God's going to be obligated to let you pass without problems. With the strong commitment and the belief that God saves, God sanctifies, and His Holy Spirit is what teaches, a clear representation of His Word, there actually can be hope. Let's talk about some common threats to parents' relationship with their children. And this is going to be true no matter the age of your children to help you just begin to think through these things. Number one, it's a common threat to parents' relationship with their children are activities. Parents are often tempted to think that their ranking as parents is based on all that their kids are given a chance to do and participate in. Soccer, swimming, basketball, football, piano, cheerleading, ice skating, gymnastics, horseback riding, uh, language school, ballet, music lessons, lacrosse, hockey, softball, tennis, cross-country, track and field, motocross, 4-H, you fill in the rest. None of these are in and of themselves sinful, but they have to be kept in proper perspective. Think of it like this. Everything you allow your child to do, is this going to help you in your parenting objective or hinder you? Your child still needs you to be the parent. Just because your child wants to do something or doesn't want to do something should not be determined what they should or should not be doing. Oftentimes, parents have to remember their children need them to make decisions for them, them meaning their parents for them, versus just leaving it to whatever the child wants to do. The reality is that these activities provide something invaluable if used correctly. Instruction and socialization and discipline and opportunities and success and failure. But they should be a supplement, a resource in your toolbox of parenting. If the vehicle is the primary place of your interaction with them, then, then you have to recognize how much time are you getting with them. Originally, when they're very young, some of the most influential times to establish your love for them and your relationship to them is to play with them. I mean, to get on the ground and play with the young boy or young girl, to hug them, to interact with them, to greet them happily. And it becomes to interacting with them and how they interact with food and drink and siblings, from learning how to eat food to learning how not to strike their sibling. And then it moves into actually where they're going, what they're doing, what they're thinking, what they're saying, the tone in which they speak. It's not simply an attitude of, I mean, an action of disobedience or obedience. It's also attitude. We would say often in our home, there will be two reasons for you to have a consequence of your action, a corporal punishment or the like. It'll be disobedience and disrespect. To have to address the heart behind the action, not simply the action. 
These activities have to be kept in perspective because they, after all, have to be something that's a tool for you, not determining your house, but helping you direct your house. I often sometimes have to remember to help parents keep their perspective in mind. And just to kind of burst perhaps some of your bubbles, your child will not be a professional athlete. Now, I know you know I'm supposed to say that, but you think that that's actually not true for your child. I'm here to tell you that's actually true for your child nor often all those other things that are professional. And yet we often sacrifice our children's childhood on the altar of our dreams for them, not even necessarily their dreams for themselves. So be mindful of the activities that they participate in. Secondly is technology. Not only can activity be a threat, but so can technology. According to A.C. Nielsen Company, 55% of Americans spend one to four hours daily watching television. 22% spend four or more hours a day watching television. Just to put that in perspective, by the time someone is 65 years of age, they will have spent nine years of their life watching television. Nine consecutive, around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, years of watching television. The number of minutes per week that the average child watches television 1,680. The number of minutes per week by survey study that parents spend in a meaningful conversation with their child, three and a half minutes. Three and a half minutes. Smartphones are, of course, the rage now. According to a survey from reviews.org, Americans check their phones on average of 144 times a day. We also spend on average of four hours and 25 minutes each day on our phones. You don't have to guess at that. You literally can pull out the settings on your phone and look at it. 85% of Americans use the internet every day. The average American spends six hours and 58 minutes online per day. It's often on their phone. Social media accounts alone for two hours and 27 minutes per day of screen time. Two and a half hours per day. For those who are in gaming, an average person, age 15 to 24, in the United States spends 69 minutes per day gaming last year. There are, of course, those that are much more extreme in how often they game. The point is to recognize this. Whether it be the television, the smartphone, the internet, or the games, these are often the default babysitters of today. I mean, quite honestly, I know a lot of parents, including us, who had very strong convictions about our use of or lack thereof of television. And our kids are young. I mean, you only go you often so far for that. You're like, just put the TV on. <laughs> Could just use a quiet moment. I need to cook dinner. I need to do something in the garage. I need to study. I need to read. I need to make a few phone calls. And over time, what ends up happening is these technology tools become actually technology parents. The reality is even kids today think we're not being good parents to them if we don't provide these things. And they have plenty of citations of other homes and other parents and other kids and what they're provided and how seemingly mean or cruel or outdated or old-fashioned or unloving you are if you don't provide this. And the pressure is pervasive. And after a while, you just facilitate it. And ends up happening is that teenagers think they cannot be content unless they have all these things. And we do well to remember 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, where Paul says, If we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. 
It's not often a perspective of a kid today, be it a toddler or a teenager. The third thing to be aware of is not only activities and technology, it's also privacy. Privacy of relationship, privacy of space, separate rooms, separate TVs, separate computers, separate meals, separate lives. Too often today, it's common to see a teenager sitting at the table in public at a restaurant with headphones on, or to see a toddler at the table with an iPad in front of them. It shouldn't be a surprise when the toddler's got the iPad that the teenager will have the headphones. This idea that I'm in a public space with others, but I get to interact privately as if I'm the only person here, it makes one very self-centered and create a sense of relational disability where a person has conversational immaturity. They don't think of others, they think only of themselves. There is something advantageous to recognize the reality of how important it is to caution against privacy. Too often, teenagers want to come home, get food, and go to their rooms, come back out hours later to get more food, then go back to their rooms. And after all, if that's all that's needed, then I guess it's okay. The problem in that context is what happens in those rooms. It's not only the influence of what goes on in the room, it's what's not going on in the rest of the house. We often told our kids when they were younger, even before smartphones, when they just had uh, computers, uh, but eventually when they had smartphones, there was no technology in the bathrooms or the bedrooms. Over time, that didn't become reasonable to do that, the bathrooms it was, but not the bedrooms, so we always made sure that even in the bedrooms, the door was open and the monitors were always facing the doorway. We all know what it's like to face these temptations. Curiosity at best doesn't just kill the cat, it can kill your kid's heart. How many of them today at a very young age have seen pornography for the very first time? The last thing they're going to do is come and tell you about it. And you know this because it's what it was like for you as a kid as well. Privacy is often not your friend. It's your enemy, at least of your child. Fourth is laziness. Families are often so tired from doing all of the things that they're too tired for the main things. The effort that's needed doesn't seem like it's worth it. All the, are the arguing and the ungratefulness. And so honestly, it's just lowest common denominator. I get that. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to just simply say, let's watch something and say, let's talk about something. And the reality is, families that don't do much together don't have much relationship. So instead, let me propose to you a different practice, one of a family identity. A family identity where you're known by your last name as to what you do. They don't even know the options. They just know that this is what it's like to be in your home. This is what you're going to do. The first area to consider is your family conversation. The family conversation, think about Proverbs 17, verse 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. How to even teach your kids how to talk with each other as siblings, how to slow the tape down and how to put them in a place, let's talk about what's happening. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29 says, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Talking about their diligence and their responsibility. 
what they're called to do, not doing things half-heartedly. Proverbs 23, verse 17, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Just these three verses alone could be good conversations with your children tonight. Not all three verses, just pick one of the three. This idea that, as Deuteronomy says, that we're to speak of the Word of God with them in the house when we walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. As your kids get older, you'll have to realize some of the best conversations you're going to have are not face-to-face but shoulder-to-shoulder, meaning it's some shared activity, some shared destination. I would often make up reasons to get in the car with my sons and go somewhere so I could have a conversation with them. So in doing so, they'd be more inclined to engage and talk. Music is playing, scenes are passing by, and then low over the time, slowly over the time, making progress and things I wanted to talk about with them. Sure, talk about the sports and the weather. Talk about clothes and movies. Talk about bugs and money, celebrities and animals, plus anything that they're interested in. Teach them about a theology of pleasure. Pray. Don't just pray generically, God, thank you for the food. Talk to God with them about the color of the food, the taste of the food, the temperature of the food. Teach them to see it like they otherwise would not unless you had led them to recognize it. When they're young, take them on what I would call God walks. Show them leaves and grass. Show them bugs. Show them the clouds and the patterns. Let them see the world differently than they otherwise why by default do. Show them that wherever they look, they can see the hand of God how wise and powerful and good it is. Read the headlines to them at the table. Talk about what's going on in the world. Teach them about more than just what's happening in their classroom or their home. Teach them about what's happening in their country, what's happening in the world in other countries. Will they rise up and call you blessed at the end of that conversation? No. Will they sometimes think that, I don't understand what we've been talking about, perhaps. But read to them, engage with them. So first area is family conversation. Second of all is family service. Teach your children to think of others by acting for others. Not just think of others by just thinking of others and perhaps praying for others, but actually acting for others. Start with praying for other people, of course, at night. One of the things that we would do is we would tell them to think about an attribute of God that they wanted to praise God for. Think about something for themselves they wanted to ask God help with. And think about somebody else in their life that they wanted to pray for. Grandparents got prayed for a lot because that was an obvious connection for them. Sometimes each other as siblings, other times classmates and teachers, other times pastors and neighbors. It was just teaching them of how to think of others, but then how to move from thinking of others to acting for others. Family service, one of the most influential things that my parents did for me was on Thanksgiving and Christmas, we went to the food shelter. We helped out the soup kitchen. My parents had an instinct to do this even before we were Christian. It had an indelible impact on my life. I remember my mom teaching me with my dad to go and to realize how many toys I had that I just did not need and did not need to have, to take them, only the best of which were in good condition, not dilapidated condition, the best of condition, as if they were brand new, take them and to wrap them up. And then we would go to the mission while my family was serving meals, because I was too small to actually work the line, I would go throughout the tables and I would find the kids that were there and I would give them my toys wrapped up as new presents. 
Was I great at it? No, I was probably some awkward little kid who did it. But I was glad to take what God had given to me and give it away to others. And I enjoyed it. And it made my meal taste different. It made my toys seem different. It made my holiday seem richer with more color. It taught me gratitude and began to make me think of others in ways I would not normally think of others. Think about how you can serve other people and involve your kids in that. Not just them being a part of it, but them actually thinking about who they could serve as a family. Make that a part of your legacy. Make your kids say, in our home, we serve people. That's what we did. And I'll say it's a point of brag, but it says a point of thankfulness. It was a perspective of theirs. Not just family conversations and family service, it's also family hospitality. Number three, family hospitality. And get your kids involved in who they want to serve, but also think about the details of how they serve regarding who they want to bring over. Now, you might feel like your apartment is too small, your dining room table cannot fit enough people, perhaps. I'd venture to say otherwise. Or you might feel like we don't have enough money in our budget to actually feed people a meal. I know what that's like. They really do not have enough money to feed other people a dinner. But we can bake brownies for a box of a couple of bucks at the grocery store and bake a box of brownies and invite people over for dessert. And they can play games at my house. And I can ask my kids who they would want to have over, who they think would be fun or who they'd like to ask questions to, who they would want to meet. I think of one World War II veteran in our other church by the name of Joe Miley and how much they enjoyed getting to know him and how he enjoyed getting to know them, taking my wife and sons to Golden Corral to spend time with them. I think about the significance of Hamlet hospitality. I wanted my sons to grow up thinking that our home was a place for not only us to rest and eat and enjoy family, our home was a place to serve other people. That they could not think for very long in any season of time in their upbringing that their home was not filled with the lives of other people. Hospitality of missionaries, hospitality of visiting pastors, hospitality of Christians coming through town, hospitality of neighbors that perhaps water was out or power was out, hospitality of people around by which meals were being shared, conversations were being had. Family hospitality is a powerful tool to show the love of Christ to other people, especially those who don't come from good homes. Sometimes even just watching you with your kids can be the greatest gift you can give them, not even the food you feed them. They want to see how you handle your kid who interrupts you three, four, five, six, 17 times. What does bath time and bedtime look like? Number four is family giving. It's not just family conversations, family service, family hospitality, also family giving. Family giving is to involve your kids in saying, not only how does dad or mom use their time, but how does dad or mom use their money? How to be faithful in giving to your church. How to identify as a family where that money will go and how the people it will serve. Even helping connect the idea of the things that you will not do as a family because the things you want to do as a family. Perhaps some trips you'll take, perhaps some eating out you will not do because of the people you want to have over instead. And how even involving that, giving to the church, and how we wanted our sons to know that whatever God gave them, that was in part as a way to express God gave all of that to them, and they're called to express that trust in the Lord by giving back to Him. I think what's so sad is how often kids, perhaps even raised by parents who are 
doing well with their money are not taught how the parents are using their money. Perhaps parents are not using their money well, and that's why they don't teach their parents about their kids about money, because they're not prepared for their kids to know about their money. I think it's a great way to provide accountability for yourself. What do you spend your money on? Why do you shop at one store versus another? Why do you not shop as much as you otherwise would? Why do you eat what you eat? Why do mom and dad at times share meals or share drinks? Or why do you go on vacations? How do you afford vacations and other people don't go on vacations? How do these things take place? What about the idea of instantaneous gratification, which certainly a credit card offers us, but with lasting consequences versus the idea of delayed satisfaction? trusting in the Lord, bringing matters before the Lord in prayer. How do all these things get covered? How do all these things get paid for? Who pays for them? How does God provide for them? And how does your giving represent faith in the things that are eternal, investing in where moth does not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal? Does your, do your kids know what it's like to enjoy blessing others, even doing so anonymously? where the people don't even know that it came from your family. But your kids knew, and they loved it. It became almost a game where they enjoyed blessing people. Of course, initially, it wasn't their money. It was their parents' money. But they one day looked forward to having their own money so they could enjoy the same thing as well, because after all, Jesus said himself, it is better to give than to receive. So we think about this family identity. Think about your conversations, your service, your hospitality, and your giving. Last, let's think about our worship, our family worship, not the worship of family, but our family worshiping the Lord. Family worship can be defined as a time where members of the family come together to engage in learning and thinking and reflecting on the Lord based on His Word. It can involve reading, teaching, discussing, singing, praying, and other related efforts to teach about the Lord. There were a few times in our family we tried to sing. My wife would largely just laugh at the rest of us because we couldn't carry a note or stay on key. But nevertheless, the opportunity to keep truth in front of the family. Think about the benefits of family worship, setting aside time at the table for casual conversation, providing a routine that can help stabilize your schedule. If you have an expectation of regularly be leading in this regard, it helps ground you, helps bring you back together. Too often because of the activities, you're being spun out of control and always desiring but never prioritizing the time to be together, allowing your parents, allowing yourself rather as parents to be proactive, not reactive. There's a lot of things as parents will be called to address. We have to or we're not going to be good parents. But that's often reactive parenting. What about proactive parenting? We're like, I want to have a conversation with you that you probably won't even understand for years to come. Things you can teach them about the character of God, their responsibility towards God. Teach them about their hearts. Teach them about the good news of Jesus. Teach them about their desires. Teach them about their family. Teach them about the church. Teach them about their world. You can do things like read a gospel. Like literally go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, take resources like Operation World's Window on the World and pray through that. Subscribe to Voice of Martyrs magazine. It's free. And read an article from Voice of Martyrs magazine at the table. Memorize Scripture together as a family. 
Have a child teach you the lesson that they learned at Grace Kids or Grace Youth on Sunday or Friday. Involve them in the conversation. As a family, being a part of our previous church, it was our practice every five years we would read through the Bible together as a church family. And you know, everyone starts off with Bible reading plans with the best of intentions, and a lot of us fall short in that because, well, you know, it's like any other New Year's resolution. You meant to lose the weight, you meant to eat less sugar, you meant to go to bed sooner, you meant to watch less TV, you meant to read the Bible more, and by the time March or maybe April makes it around, you're like, well, we'll try better next year. God in His grace, though, allowed us as a family to, to do this, and we kept doing it day after day, week after week. And even when we would travel, we would call each other and still read over the phone and do it together. And uh, one of my sons to this day, if you ask him his testimony and you say, uh, how did you get, become a Christian? And he would say, it was when one year my family and I just read the Bible together. It wasn't a sermon. It wasn't a devotion that mom gave. It wasn't a book that they read. It wasn't a compelling lesson from children's ministry or youth. It literally was the Bible, God's Word alone. I say that not to somehow go, okay, that's the solution. Read my Bible with my family throughout the entire year. My kid will be saved by the end of the year. I don't mean to say that. Only one of my kids at that seemingly worked for it did not work for the other ones. But to recognize the power of the Word of God. It is, after all, as it describes, alive and active, sharp in the two-edged sword. And so how to bring the Scriptures regularly in. One of the things that's very true and powerful for kids is the use of music. We love using good Christian music. And even when they're young, memorizing some of the songs, how that music can help. If you're looking for resources, you can ask Pastor Ronald or Pastor Chris, what are some of those songs today that they use with their own children? Especially when they're younger, how music can be a great way to teach truth. It becomes catchy. It becomes easy to memorize. But even at times as the kids get older, a lot of times kids just default to cultural taste and appetites. They don't know otherwise. You to recognize that and to show them and to point them. You're like, dude, I don't even know where to begin. Well, ask some of the youth leaders here at the church. Ask Nate Thompson and ask others, help me think of some good music for my son or for my daughter that we can play in the car so I don't have to listen to the profane things that are often being popularized today. So it's the idea of the songs you listen to, the scripture reading, the resources that you're uh, exposing them to, the conversations you're having. The idea is to recognize the, the regular routine of the value of family worship. Now, let me just say here, it's important to recognize you're not going for a perfect attendance record. This isn't some internal competition that you have with other families here who can have the most family devos in a row before you break the streak. Life happens Moms and dads travel, people get sick, other challenges come up. The question is not what did you do today or what did you do this week? It's what is the overall large upbringing of what it's like to be raised by you as a mom or a dad going to teach your kids? What matters? Who matters? As I said to you last night, I'll say again, it's not primarily what you do, it's who you are. What do you love? What do you talk about? Is your home one of legalism or license, both of which are perversions about the gospel? If it's one of a love for the Lord because of your faith in Christ, the true risen Savior, who extends the offer of grace to young kids and older kids, 
from obedient children to runaway rebellious teenagers, the author of Christ is to all of them. And that should not only be heard from you, that should also be seen by you as a people who are an ambassador for that truth. All right. As promised, time now for Q&A. And then I have something I'm going to read to you at the very end as my uh, final encouragement to you that I think you are all going to enjoy. If you don't enjoy it, you can just lie to me and tell me that was great. Super thankful for that. Um, okay, so similar to yesterday, question at the mic so we can capture it. And uh, feel free to tilt the mic up or down however you need it so we can hear you. Uh, Danelle, will you come up with your microphone, which is right there? And let's, uh, let's get into it. Questions, comments? I don't know if you guys will be able to answer this, but is there a difference uh, as kids get older, like between boy and girl and how you would discipline or like raise them as they get older? Yeah. Especially in a blended family. Yeah, I'll, I will give a principled answer, and I say that because I want to be transparent and say I've only raised three sons. I've not raised boys and girls. But what I'm going to say is not necessarily driven just based on experience. It's the recognition similar to each child, even if they're the same gender, um, Children have different temperaments, and I have thing I've definitely learned with boys raising them is uh, it's more important for them to quickly see the cause and effect relationship of what they've done and connecting it to the consequence, because it can be very much be out of sight, out of mind. Um, I also find it to be true from what I've heard from others, and others can testify to this themselves and maybe follow up with you as a personal way to answer that question, that uh, for some temperaments of some children, particularly what often more common with boys, they will actually transact with you based on the known consequence as like, that's okay, I'll take it. Meaning, I, I know some children who'd be like, spanking is a consequence, give it. I want it. And what they're saying is they want to do the action no matter the consequence. You're like, wow, that was not what I expected. Um, now, that's not unique to guys, as it can be also with girls. Girls can be stubborn and hard-hearted as well. But temperamentally, the ladies, the, and I mean ladies in the sense of with the, with the young girls or older, could be temperamentally uh, much more sensitive emotionally and maybe more inclined to process conversationally. And so they have to be gentle there. The only other asterisk I'll add and see if my wife has anything to offer to the question about blended family, my, my counsel to you in that regards is to be very careful in one sense to treat everybody equal in the house so that the children do not feel like there's partiality 
with both blessing or consequences. At the same time, to recognize when there is a blended family, there's other parental figures in that kid's life that you're trying to very carefully navigate in a way that's not trying to create what is at times a temptation, which is, well, I like that household better than this household because in that household, I don't get in trouble for this here. What you don't want to do when a child does that, and that's not an uncommon reaction for a child, is to throw that other parent under the bus. Say, well, I, I trust when you're with your mom or with your dad, that's a decision to make. I, I'm, that's not my responsibility. And our responsibility, as we're teaching from the scriptures, this is how we want to raise you, and here's why we want to raise you. It's not uncommon to have blended families to have parents uh, or have children sort of pick favorites based upon who gives them what they want in the immediate. And at that point, you've got to remember, you're playing a long game here which is for that child to realize in the long term what was an expression of love, and sometimes it wasn't an expression of discipline. So it's a bit of a sense. But in your home, I would do the best you can to not show partiality because that's somehow being an asterisk on that relationship. You don't want that to be the case. To the first part of the question, would you offer anything differently there? Boys and girls, discipline, consequence. Okay. Other questions? Um, my question is, is it wrong to shelter your kids from worldly things or should parents inform their kids on worldly things and why they should avoid them? Um, I'll use the sex conversation as an example. When we started reading through those books, we would also include things that they would hear at school. So they were not surprised by any words that they heard at school, even the bad words. We taught them those bad words. And that good, sounds interesting, the okay, statement. In the context of like, okay, well, this body part is also referred to as this word, though that's seen as a little more crude way of saying it. I'm trying to be a little Thank bit you. vague here. Um, Hopefully you can all pick up what I'm putting down. Um, but we would teach them those things so that they weren't surprised by it at school um, or made fun of for not knowing what it meant when everybody at the lunch table laughs and they're like, what does that mean? And they're not going to say that out loud. So to answer that question in that way, and you can add to this in whatever other way, but mm. we were trying to just be a little step ahead of the program so that there weren't shocking. Mm. Yeah, things. I think the, the, the question you're asking is, think of it like um, uh, weight. It would be cruel of a father to give to a child, boy or girl, a 50-pound 50 50 dumbbell and say, pick that up and carry it over there. They cannot do that. That's an unreasonable expectation. Um, but to give them a two-pound dumbbell, probably quite reasonable. So when it comes to this idea of like protecting the child, what you want to recognize what you're trying to do is you're trying to raise your child to discern the world through the lens of God's Word and to see it correctly, to not only discern right from wrong, but also to kind of see their hearts in relationship to it and to also see others correctly. 
That does not mean I'm going to expose them everything immediately because that's like the act of 50 pounds. They're not meant to bear all that. I don't want that to be premature and to be irresponsible. At the same time, I don't want them to be surprised by the world that's waiting them because I do think a lot of parents lose sight of the fact that their children, most likely, I know in Miami can be different, but most likely will spend most of their life out of their home than in their home. So how well am I doing while they're in my home, preparing them for life out of my home? To engage in a meaningful way that I'm not surprised by what I see. And I know by what I see how to interact and respond to it. How do I view things and how do I view those people who are doing those things? My wife's earlier point, for example, was on the topic of sex and the resources we've made available to you last night by, by illustration, to begin the conversation early as a point of anatomy. Like, what are these parts? And then it progresses into a conversation of function. What do they do with each other functionally? Babies and the like. To then move into the conversation, same progressive conversation about relationship. What these parts are, what they do, and, and who you do them with relationally. So by the time they get into what is the classic sort of time of, let's say, middle school years, and they're starting to talk about this, and I realize it's a fallen world, who knows, elementary school years, but you just track with me here. Kids are kind of like whispering as they sort of try these topics on each other. Our kids were like, oh, you mean, and they would say, you know, whatever the thing was, and they'd be like, uh, yeah, oh yeah, my parents, we talk about that all the time. And they'd be like, your parents talk about this? Now, they maybe have crass and crude terms, which is sort of in the slang, but the idea of like what it is, what it's for, and who it's for felt very normal to them. What that was was us trying to perceive parentally what Solomon does in Proverbs. It says in Proverbs, as he's talking to his son Rehoboam, he says, I looked through the lattice and I, dis- and I saw the youth out there. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 9 says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Who are these abstract sinners? How would they entice you? He speaks about them talking about lying in blood for the weight, you know, lying in wait for the blood of others kind of thing. What does that look like today? So I think there, is, there are parents who are right-hearted in what they want to protect their kids from, but they're wrong-headed in how they're going about it. And their kids go out in the world and they're just shocked and they're not prepared. Um, so, for example, an educational choice that we made, and this is a methodology, this is not a biblical prescription. So I'm completely content for other Christians to judge me and say, not judging it, it sounds bad, but like disagree with me. We made a decision to homeschool our kids in elementary, put them in Christian school in middle school, and put them in public school in high school. That's not a biblically prescribed pattern. Why did we do that? We did that because I wanted my kids, by the time they're in high school, to be in the world but come home every night to my house to have questions. And if they didn't have questions, I had questions. So that when they move out in the world, and they do, they go out, they go live in foreign countries, they go out in other states. I mean, one of my sons like, I'm going to go work for the organic farmers in Georgia. I'm like, what, what? One's like, I'm going to go to a very secular liberal university. One is like, I'm going to go in the military with a bunch of guys in a very masculine endeavor where his career, 96% of them are all males. Have I parented in my home to be ready for that university, 
for that location, that state, for that industry, have I parented before? I hope I have done at least enough to help them in that way. Yeah. Next question. How do I wisely uh, have a conversation with my kid regarding a direct family member being transgender or gay, hmm. specifically? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I would just again probably have, before that conversation came up, would have probably already been reading to them and framing, especially since I know it's such a cultural conversation, uh, human identity, human gender, human sexuality. So they understand like the reference point of what is right and good and true. The wisdom of God for the good of society the relationship that we have to each other, so that they have a reference point of like what is right. So saying it differently, think about counterfeit currency. The way you're able to identify counterfeit currency, especially if you're a bank teller, is because you deal with the real thing all day long. So I want them to have that baseline established. Then when my kid brings that question home, I want them to bring it home against the backdrop of what is good and right and true, and then get into the conversation today about confusion, ignorance, uh, parental irresponsibility, or a naivete that that's an expression of love, and to recognize what's driving these conversations and these identities. Uh, the joke for some teenagers today is you actually get street cred by claiming you're gay, even if you're not gay, because gay is cool. It's like cool to be gay. And if you're not actually gay, it's cool to be pro-gay, even if you're not personally pro-gay. But why is that? I want, I, want, I want my kids to understand the world by which that seemingly makes sense, but why in God's world it's not what is good and right and true, and how it does not love neighbor, and it does not love the Lord, and it does not love yourself, as God even created you in that respect, as far as your identity. But I want to do so through the lens of compassion, care. Uh, not always the case, and I want to qualify that as an important disclaimer. Sometimes people move into that conversation out of great trauma. I think of a conversation I had two weeks ago regarding a college student who now is self-identifying as gay. Well, that largely came from, in this particular case, because of some very bad heterosexual relationship experiences that they do not want to repeat that again. So they then think, well, that's what it's like to be a heterosexual relationship. I don't want that. I've got friends of the same sex that I trust and are confidants to me and that I really enjoy. The only thing missing is the romance part, and I can learn to see them romantically, then I can have the fullness of that relationship. That's a reaction to something. And so how to speak with my kids in a way that says, I don't want to speak condemningly where I dehumanize another individual that's made in the image of God. Because people who are gay or transgender, though there can be great sexual dysphoria, gender dysphoria, or great sexual confusion, where our whole identities are wrapped around that, and I profoundly disagree as teaching from the Scriptures, and nevertheless want to make sure that those people represent as made in the image of God why we love them, or we're going to pray for them, or we're going to find ways to try to serve them. So it's like we're holding out this truth as being what is true. And this also truth about what is true, who they are, but the problems they're having. 
Does that make sense? Would you add anything to that? Um, I would maybe do it with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to make it effective. We did this with pornography. You know, again, like you saying everything you said is all true to the parent, but to bring it down on whatever age child it is, I took two slices of bread out of a loaf and I put it up over the refrigerator where they couldn't reach it for weeks until both turned moldy, like the nice, deep, green, white mold all over the bread. And I did two sandwiches, peanut butter and jelly, one with good bread, one with bad bread. Um, and I set it in the middle of the table one night for dinner. And I said, all right, let's dig in. Let's do this one first and pointed to the moldy and went to pass it out. And they were like, no, 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 we don't want that one. And I was like, why not? They're like, because it looks gross. And I'm like, well, but it's the same. It's the, literally the same thing. Like I pulled this bread out of the same bag. It's the same peanut butter, same jelly. So you tease that out in the form of questions. And the point being at the end of the conversation is God designed this to be eaten in this way and it will be good. But sin corrupts and breaks down what is good. And this is what the bad peanut butter and jelly looks like. But the world is going to tell you that that bad peanut butter and jelly isn't going to make you sick. And, and it will. You know? And so you basically like... Unbelievably them. creative, Danelle Bancroft. Whatever scenario you, know, scenario you want to use it in, you just tease it out to make that point. They'll remember the peanut butter and jelly. They won't remember the monologue. You know what I mean? So just look for ways to like bring it to their level. Excellent. They're now like, that parenting conference was worth it. <laughs> it was kind of touch and go there for a while, but the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I will remember that. They're all going home, put uh, bread on top of their fridges. Other questions? A real live living mother. I, um, I just had a question about like um, childcare and how do you kind of what you're talking about yesterday, but how do you wisely choose people to watch your children? Yeah. So the question is childcare. Who to trust, what kind of environment to put them in, how to be mindful about what's wise versus not. What would you say there? Obviously, you want to you want to know the people. So again, if it's friendships at church or whatever, you want to eat dinner with them, you want to hang out with them, with their kids to see are they impatient, are they yelling at their kids, do they smack them at the table? You know, all of those little things. You're looking for those things. Um, I think it's more just, again, having those conversations ahead of time with your kids. So I was thinking about this from yesterday. We literally use names with our kids of people that we trusted 100%. But we said, if your youth pastor, this is back in Indiana, so-and-so were to ever ask you to go into his office by yourself and touch this or whatever, like we teased out those moments so that they knew in that moment, this is wrong and I need to tell my parents. And you're not going to be in trouble. Again, that, that's all in those books. You're not going to be in trouble if people are asking you not to say something. That's usually because they're doing something wrong and it's not okay to keep secrets. Um, 
So I think it's more, it's being aware of who you're with and, and who you're going to choose, but it, I think it's more about preparing your kids for those conversations and always knowing that they can come talk to you and ask questions and they're not going to get in trouble for what they ask. Yeah, and so kind of build on that. Think about, for example, a pediatrician who's checking out a child's development. For the child to be taught with the parent and the pediatrician present, this is something very special that's just for you, referring to their body parts. And your doctor is only interacting with you for the purpose of medicine this way with your parents' permission and presence. This is just for this special moment here for the purpose of making sure that you're doing well, that God's growing you, that there's no problem in that respect. So they see it's a, it's a, it's a point of privacy and protection. I say that because when you move into other arenas of relationships and to teach them um, several things. Number one, just the significance of how God made them and how they need to be prepared for that idea of how to understand other environments. One of the things that Danelle said I want to just double click on is the idea that you want your children to know that they can tell you anything all the time. There's nothing that they can tell you that if they, if they learn from you, that they would lose a relationship with you. Because the part of how the way that um, sex abuse works by way of grooming is it teaches a child that what they're doing with a child is normal behavior, except it's a special thing that, that they have with that child and that that child should not share with their parent. And the parent might feel that they'll get in trouble with their parent. Or, yeah, the child might feel they'll get in trouble with their parent or somehow lose that relationship. You want them to know that's just not true. So when it comes to issues of child care, it's, it's public, it's known, uh, it's, you know, appropriate uh, boundaries and things like that about how much interaction you have and things like this. Um, and I think you have as a parent talking with your spouse, if you're married, if you're not, you can talk with a good friend. Uh, what about things like bathroom breaks and things like this, places you're going to be uh, publicly and not, to just make wise decisions. And I, I say this because we're kind of answering the question principally, but there are some specific resources that we can give you that make you kind of think through those things from babysitting young babies to, you know, teenage sleepovers, if those should even be done. Practically, too, depending on, you know, if it's a date night out, there's ways to not put your kids in challenging circumstances. So, for example, if you're going out to dinner in a movie, bathe your kid before the babysitter comes. Then the babysitter doesn't have to give him a bath. If it's somebody you trust, great, but... If it's, you know, if it's someone that you'd rather not having, not have them give a bath, then just give the bath before, have them be in their jammies, done, you know, then you, you totally exclude that moment altogether. Hi. We have a distant relative who is gay and has just adopted a little baby girl. What, and he's in a relationship. What would be the best way to navigate conversations with family members who are closer to this relative and excited for them when it is so contrary to the biblical view of family and adoption? What would be the best way to show love to this new parent and or the relative that is close to them without supporting their situation? Um, I mean, I think it's to learn to differentiate between the proposition and the person. So the proposition is being put forward is that this is normal and right and good. We disagree with that biblically versus the person, starting first the child, and then now this gay parent who's adopted this child. 
Um, I, I think the relationship can continue with this individual without feeling like by continuing that relationship, it's some type of implicit endorsement of that decision. Which honestly, if you are living as a convictional Christian, both in how you act and in what you say you believe, they'll know that. They'll know that disagreement is present. For the child, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I would probably overwhelmingly try to show love to this child. I would, uh, the child didn't make that decision. And at kind of at a functional level, the child has protection, has provision. Um, we don't want the child to be in an orphaned state moving from foster home to foster home in risk of perpetual lack of safety and concern where there's a lot other issues. So you're triaging sort of the lesser to the least or lesser to the greater as far as concerns. So it's learning how to kind of carefully nuance worldview type propositional issues, what's right and good as prescribed by the Word of God, which we don't compromise on when given the opportunity to make decisions for ourselves or advise others on decisions for them to make. We hold the line because we're faithful to the Word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. Yet when it comes to engaging with people who disagree on those decisions and or are the byproduct of the decision, in this case that adopted child, love them, care for them, serve them. And if you in any way ever think that people are somehow interpreting your love for that person to be some type of affirmation, well, they just don't know you. I wouldn't feel the need to have to go around and say, I just want to make sure you know where I am on gay marriage. As, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Um, and then to the more specific details, I'd say it's a case-by-case basis by which I would have been just addressed in that with some specificity. Oh, creative one, you have anything more to offer? No sandwiches to make for that one? I could probably think of one, but no. no yeah, no. I know you can. Um, the financial conversation, Yeah. how young should that start, and can you give like a practical mock example? Um, how young should that start? I have the example part in my head. Um, you know, okay, I'll, I'll pair it to this because this is about to be over, so if I don't say it now, you won't hear it. I remember one time I was, I had just spanked one of our boys for doing something, and uh, he said, this isn't fair. We're talking like young young elementary, this isn't fair, you never get spankings to me. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm thinking, okay, how can I make this make sense to him? Again, because it's a heart issue you're going after. I said, actually, um, I don't get spankings, but I do get consequences. And your consequence when you're little is a spanking. But mommy's consequence, I said, for example, if we're going to the grocery store, and daddy has set out a budget for our family, um, and I overspend that on all the snacks and the treats that I want, and maybe some new nail polish, and anything that I can find at Publix, and I'm not getting food for the family, like good food to keep us healthy and give us energy, daddy could, I'm not gonna get a spanking, but daddy could say, hey, I'm taking the credit card away or I'm gonna physically go to the grocery store with you because you cannot control yourself at the grocery store. So I was trying to give him a mental picture of, I have an authority too, it's daddy, but even more than daddy is God, and daddy answers to God. 
And God will give daddy consequences if he doesn't lead the, the family well. So that's a little tiny way you could have it at, at a grocery store setting or when you're at the Dollar Tree. Hey, we have, of course, it's now the Dollar Twenty-Five Tree, but um, they haven't changed labels yet. Um, you could have a little discussion like, hey, this is how much we're going to do. You can pick anything in here, but we're not going to go over this. You know, there, there's lots of little ways. What? There is one big way, but I would say it's more like junior high. And what extras I did, I'll, I'll explain that. The, okay. The, the table thing with the money. Yeah. Yeah. So I want them to see money doesn't just appear out of nowhere. I want them to see how God chooses to give money, to make the connection um, and the dignity behind that money, like it, it is a reward, it is a compensation for a skill, for a knowledge. So there's a sense of dignity to vocation. A lot of times adults think their job is just for two reasons, if they're a Christian. One, to just get the money I wish I could have to finance a life I wish I could have otherwise. They don't see the dignity in the vocation. Or maybe it's keep me around non-Christians, I should tell them about Jesus. They don't actually see the dignity of what they do as being a meaningful expression of being made in the image of God. So I want to help connect my kids to like money and work and how God created that as an expression of value and, and provision. So that's the working aspect. But then when it comes to, okay, God gave dad money, God gave mom money, what are we doing with this money? Well, that money that we're spending, it shows what we value with what we have. Mom and dads are tempted to always wish we had more, just like you're probably tempted to wish you had more. Um, and we see others who do have more than us. And that can, I can struggle with that same thing myself. Um, they have n newer cars. You know, dad drives a 20-year-old car. They have nicer houses. They have whatever. So the same thing that my child is seeing at a childlike level is true with their mom and dad. And I wanted them to understand, yeah, this is what God's given. But look how we've been able to use it to honor the Lord. When it comes to then giving, I actually want to not just tell them. I want to involve them. So... Matthew 6, in that context, is being aware of practicing your righteousness before others so that they might kind of praise you. But with my children, I'm not trying to be self-righteous with my kids. I want them to see, though, what I'm doing to take steps of obedience. So I want them to know how mom and dad give money to the church as an expression of trust that the Lord provides for our needs, trust that the money that he's given, that we trust him, he'll provide for us accordingly, that we value the things that God values. So there's a real tangible sense. And even at the point, we would actually enjoy letting them put the offering, I mean, we'd now do it electronically, but put the offering envelope in the offering plate as like on behalf of their family, they're giving the money. It wasn't their money and that they earn it, but it was their money and they're part of the family. So at times we actually have them literally physically give the money. When it came later to the idea of spending the money, the point she, she talked about, when they were young teenagers, uh, I took a paycheck worth of money, cashed it, divided it up into $100 bills, $20 bills, $10 bills, $5 bills, and, um, and then mom was the government, and... Uh, and somebody else represented, you know, the Lord. And so we basically just ran, literally took all the money. It's so like, here is their paycheck. And of course, in their world, they're like, this is awesome by comparison of what they're used to having. And it began to walk through like, okay, well, everything we give, what do we first do? Like, well, we give to the Lord. So the first thing we do with our paycheck is we're going to do it. So we're like, cannot all that money 
you know, that we're giving, like, okay, so that's going to be for the Lord because the Lord provides all this. This is like our offering of trust to him. This is how he's been teaching. So they see that money go. Okay, now, do you like those police officers coming to your house? Do you like the roads you drive on? Do you like having a stop sign so people don't hit your mom inside of the car? Well, yeah. Well, that is the government. They like providing that material to you, but just so you know, you have to pay the government for that. So there goes your taxes. You're like, oh, wow, there goes all my taxes. It really just ran through the whole budget of exercise from like, hey, you like this apartment we're living in? You like this? I, you, you like this? I like it too. Well, they don't come for free, and you got to actually pay for that. And so the next thing you know, they, like, they go from all this great amount of money to like, you know, like $22. And it was like miscellaneous, like, go do whatever you want with you and your brothers. You're like, I, I only have like $22 here. Like, I know, but go have, I mean, go have a blast with it. Like, have a blast. You're like, oh, it's $22. Like, I know, I know. This is what mom and dad do every single month. So then it better connects for them. Like when they say they want this, they want this, they want this. Like, okay, I hear that. What are you wanting us not to do in order to get that? Because what mom and dad are not willing to do is presume on God's provision for the future. So we're not willing to live in debt with credit cards. So we're going to have to make decisions on what we're willing to go without as a point of responsibility and then it becomes, it becomes very, very tangible then that when they make a request, they're making a request with it, that request in context. Like you like electricity, you like air conditioning, you like hot water, you like a fridge of food, you like you know, having shoes, all of which we want to provide for you. That's my responsibility to provide that for you. I want it. But that doesn't mean I can get them to you as much as I wish I could or the same as what other people have. This is what the Lord's given us, and we're super thankful because God's not given all this to everybody all the time. And it just took it from being very abstract to being very actual, like, okay, I think I better understand it. Um, and you just kind of find ways over the years as they get older to kind of keep increasing that sort of levels of exposure and participation. Yes, ma'am. Um, as someone newly married or uh, no children, uh, balancing the desire to just get to know my spouse and spend that first year, whatever, um, getting to know that person while also wanting to raise a family. What are things to pray through, talk about when trying to decide when to start having children? Yeah. All right. So I would say, first of all, please, and that sounds like you already are, so I commend this, please do not detach procreation from marriage as one of the reasons why to get married. A lot of times today, as I said last night in the message, uh, increasingly people think of like children as being an elective at best and unpreferred uh, at worst. It's like I have to have them. So I, I commend that to be have a high view of children. The question then comes, okay, I have a high view of kids. I look forward to us being parents. When do we have that? I think we have to say at the outset, the scripture doesn't speak specifically to that. There's a lot of freedom in Christ. I would definitely say, be sure to not let those decisions be motivated by idolatry. So for example, sometimes what motivates it is a discontentment of what you do not have. If you're not careful, that will always be present in your life. I'm single, I'll be content when I'm married. Well, then I'm married, I'll be content when I have a child. I have a child, I'm content when I have several kids. You're like, okay, the problem is not what you don't have, the problem is what's going on in that heart of yours. So address what's ever motivating the decision to do the thing you want to do. 
I think at the same time is to really enjoy what might be a short season or a long season of the marriage. A short season uh, because you might either by design or by default be able to really prioritize some good foundational practices in your marriage. Our communication, our conflict resolution, our love for each other, our handling of money, our understanding of our roles. Because it is true, once you introduce children into the equation, uh, you go from being man to man to zone. I mean, you start like, we got a lot of things going on here relationally. I'm trying to take care of those. So you want to you leverage that time uh, when it's just the two of you to enjoy that and build some disciplines in your relationship that can bear fruit when you start having kids. You want your kids to think of as an addition to the home, but not a reshifting of the priority of the home. In other words, it's very common children have child-centered homes. The children are the main actors. Everything else is just a supporting actor for that child. That, that is an unfortunate uh, practice that a lot of parents fall into. So think of your kids as being a welcomed addition that are a blessing from the Lord, but they are going to come and they're going to go. And you know who's still going to be there when that kid leaves? Your spouse. And so that relationship is meaningful to keep investing in that. The other thing I would say is don't presume you can just have kids whenever you want to have kids. Uh, this is a common challenge for a lot of people who either don't think highly of kids and or understandably paying off a lot of student loan debt. And they're like, dude, I got to like work for a long time before I can get all that debt paid off. And if I want to stay at home, if I do want to stay at home, if that's my vision for my future as an adult, then um, I won't be able to pay off my debt as fast. And or I'm right in the middle of the budding career prospects. And you know what? Next benchmark, next benchmark. You know what's having kids? And what ends up happening is it turns out it's not as easy as it always thought it to be. Um, and that was certainly the case with us. We're like, okay, we're ready to have kids. Every month went by and there was no child. There was no pregnancy. The other thing I would say is my last feature then to you is to do not think of adoption as second class choice on, well, I would like to have kids like this, but I'll settle for kids like this. I would, especially as a Christian, I would treat children and how the Lord provides them as the arching umbrella of understanding, Lord, we pray for children and to recognize God provides those children by birth or by adoption. Sometimes either or, sometimes both and. And one of the things that the church of Jesus Christ should have is a high view of, disciple, of adoption culture in their churches. We're all pro-adoption because God adopted us. So we really want to be very pro this as a question of not virtuing out others like, well, you really love God and trust God if you adopt. That's not what we're trying to say. But what we're trying to say is that might be as an equally important thing to consider um, as part of the equation of not just when are we going to try to have kids also, when we might think about adopting children as well. So there's, but back to my opening statement, freedom in Christ, the timing of when to do that, just making sure the heart's motivated by the right things. Nothing to add on that. Yes. So the topic on spanking, um, growing up seeing that in a version that was not spanking and now being terrified in the future of like even yeah. laying any hands on my child um, is scary to me. Yep. What would, um, is spanking the only method to discipline? If so, why? And if not, if, if so, why? And if it's not, what are other options um, yeah. that exist? 
It's a good question. I'll, I'll uh, answer it briefly, but then also reference this resource. Don't make me count to three. Uh, moms look at heart-oriented discipline. So um, that can be a great book to kind of expand this conversation. You want to go first, and then I'll go second on that one? All right, I'll go first. Um, I think to acknowledge the reality that that's a very good question for a lot of people dealing with that, which is you did not have a good reference point, and you are scared to death when it comes to your parenting as to what that would look like. I remember, for example, when we had our home study for our adoption um, by this agency, uh, the woman learned that we disciplined our children, uh, and she pretty much said, you're a child abuser, um, and said, would you be open to reading why that's wrong? And I said, I'll read everything you give me. And she did. She gave like a stack of stuff. And um, because what she thought it was, as hearing it, or maybe herself, I don't know, we didn't ever become this close of friends, having experienced it, had it categorized as this, in this sort of negative way. But as she got to know us over those coming months and saw our parenting, and man, she saw our parenting and interacted, the irony was by the time we were done, she actually, in spirit of humility, said, she was a grandmotherly aged woman. She said, I wish my kids could be taught by you guys on how to parent my grandkids. Because what she thought of as, for example, in the area of discipline was abusive, was easily angered, was impatient, was what the Bible describes a loving rod of correction. He who spares the rod spoils the child. I do think discipline is a larger category, not just one. I think the question you have to answer is, what's going to teach my child, boy or girl, young or old, the cause and effect, the reaping and sowing consequence? Obedience and disobedience, blessing versus cursing in this sort of language of Deuteronomy. The younger a child is, the closer the consequence has to connect to the action or they won't make the cognitive connection. What just happened? The problem with making that connection too close in timing is if you're not careful, you're going to do so out of anger, out of impatience. If you have a point of sensitivity because of a bad experience in your background, I think this is a great conversation to make sure you're read on it, you're, you've read on it, so you know what the biblical vision is for it versus not, and you have your spouse perhaps lead in this area as a good example. Um, I do think there's an arsenal of options of how you can teach corrective discipline to your children. Can you take away consequences? Yes. Um, can you have a strong word of reaction to them, which ironically is not always an expression of anger as it's kind of a shock and awe. In other words, think if a child's running into the street. I don't think anybody's advocating for, hey, you should really graciously and patiently tell your child, hey, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny come back, come back, come back. You are going to drop like a nuclear bomb of reaction on them to cause, if nothing else, such a memory moment with their mom or their dad that they don't ever want to do that again because your reaction speaks to the tragedy about to come upon them hit by a car. So there's actually like a calculated type of strong reaction that's a measured, thoughtful reaction to create an impression that this is not just a mild decision gone wrong. 
But that's different than what we're often tempted, which is in anger. And I think, and I want you to address this, that the thing to remember about children disobeying that could help otherwise bring down the emotion. Because what do we often think as parents about our kids when they're disobeying us? That it's personal? That it's personal. Oh, yeah. Are you done, though, with no, your go thing ahead. you said? No, go ahead. Well, Anna, do you want me to share that? Share that, sure. Um, okay, there were some other thoughts as you were talking. I was thinking, uh, one caveat is, I know a lot of you have grown up in homes where there wasn't good communication, there's not been good intimacy practices, there's not been good finance discipleship. So I think this is just another one of those areas that you learned the wrong way and now you need to unlearn that way and learn the right way. And there are countless parents who have done that and are excelling. So there's hope there that it, even if you didn't see it done well, you can learn how to do it well. Um, I was going to reference this and I'm going to leave this open. So if you want to take a picture of it, you can. I just recently listened to a Paul trip, which he's one of those authors, um, thing on YouTube about parenting. This is what I do when I iron because ironing is boring. So I'll put something on the TV. It was so good that I stopped it and took notes and then finished ironing. Um, four points. Tell them the title of the message. Parenting is gospel ministry. For all of the parents in here, when I read these four things, you're going to go, yep, 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 because all of them are so true, whether it's toddler or teenager. For those of you that are new parents or going to become parents, you will need to know these four things because it affects every moment of discipline um, and can really just rein in your own sinful heart, so much so that after I listened to this, I wrote all three of my boys a note saying, I'm sorry, guys, for not showing you Christ. That was so convicting. And that's our job, to show them Christ. And the bad news is we're not going to do it well. But the good news is Jesus did it. And, and that's who our Savior is, and that's who we're pointing them to. So, now if I can read these with tears in my eyes. Okay, number one. A moment of ministry turned into a moment of anger. Number two. Parenting goes wrong because I personalize what isn't personal. So you're going to think that your two or three-year-old is waking up in the morning, sitting in the crib going, how can I give my mother such a horrible day that by the end of the day, I see her on her knees in tears? That's not what they're thinking. They're just being sinners. But that's what we're feeling like. You are out to get me today. Who is going to win this battle? Third one. It goes wrong when I'm adversarial in my response. So hearing comes that anger in our own issues as we're parenting. So we're adversarial instead of patient and realizing that we're the same. And then the fourth, 
is settling for quick situational solutions that don't get at the heart of the matter. I think of your question. Well, this is bad. This is not waterproof mascara. Um, I'm just going to let it go because the conference is almost over. But I was thinking about your question, Garrett, about fear. Your feelings of fear, you need to identify with your three-year-old once there's a one-year-old also that's crawling and about to get their toys and they hoard all the toys because they're fearful that little sister's gonna come in and take all the toys, that's your moment to say, daddy knows exactly how you feel because I get fearful about things and I know that you're fearful that Sally's gonna come in and take all your toys. They're just doing the same thing we do. If we, I wish I had this message every year in January, like listen to it again, just to kind of hit the reset button for parenting. Because it is tiring and exhausting, but it's also wonderful and glorious. I told myself I wasn't going to cry. The last thing I'm going to say, thank you, babe, for sharing that. Uh, the last thing I'm going to say on the topic of discipline is I think you need to have an understanding of not just the law, but the gospel. And what that means then is the law says if you disobey, there's a consequence. The gospel says you've disobeyed, but another has taken the consequence and you get grace instead. And what that meant was that there would be times in my parenting when they were younger and when they're older, where you bring them to the recognition of what they've done wrong and the consequence to come and then tell them you're not going to receive that. Because as much as I want you to remember a lot of things in our home, I want you to remember the times when you received grace, which is undeserved favor. When you received mercy, which is the withholding of what you otherwise deserve. So grace and mercy was equally talked about as obedience and disobedience, as law and, and, uh, and discipline. Last thing, I want to read this to you, and I think it will encourage you. So I would give it to you to read, but I don't think everybody will read it. But if I read it to you, it'll happen and it'll allow me to say it. And we'll end with this. It's an article by Kevin DeYoung a number of years ago. Kevin has nine kids to this, uh, uh, today. When he wrote this article, he only had four. But listen to what he says, and I think it'll ironically encourage you. Does it seem like parenting has gotten more complicated? I mean, as far as I can tell, back in the day, parents basically tried to feed their kids, clothe them, and keep them away from explosives. And now our kids have to sleep on their backs. No, wait, their tummies. No, never mind, their backs. While listening to baby Mozart, surrounded by scenes of starry, starry night, they have to be in piano lessons before they are five and can't leave the car seat until they're about five foot six. It's also involved. There are so many rules and expectations. Kids can't even eat sugar anymore. My parents were solid as a rock. We still had a cupboard populated by cereal royalty like Captain Crunch and Count Chocula. At our house, the pebbles were fruity and the charms were lucky. The breakfast bowl was a place for marshmallows, not dried camping fruit. Our milk was 2%, and sometimes we needed to take the edge off a rough morning. We'd tempt fate and chug a little vitamin D. I don't consider myself a particularly good parent. I was asked to speak a few years ago at some church's conference. They wanted me to talk about parenting. 
I said, I didn't have much to say, so they should ask someone else, which they did. My kids are probably not as crazy as they seem to me. At least that's what I keep telling myself anyway. But if I ever write a book on parenting, I'm going to call it The Inmates Are Running the Asylum. <laughs> there are already scores of books on parenting. Many of them are quite good. I've read several of them and have learned much. I really do believe in gospel-powered parenting and shepherding my child's heart. I want conversations like this. Me. What's the matter, son? Child. I want that toy, and he won't give it to me. Me. Why do you want the toy? Child. Because it'll be fun to play with. Me. Do you think he is having fun playing with that toy right now? Child. Yes. Me. Would it make him sad to take the toy away? Child. I guess so. Me. And do you like to make your brother sad? Child. No. Me. You know, Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That means loving your brother the way he would want to be loved. Since Jesus loves us so much, we have every reason to love others, even your brother. Would you like to love him by letting him play with the toy for a while? Child, yes, I would, Daddy. He says, I try that. Really, I do. But here's what actually happens. Me. What's the matter, son? Child. I want that toy and you won't give it to me. Me. Why do you want that toy? Child. I don't know. <laughs> me. What's going on in your heart when you desire that toy? Child. I don't know. <laughs> me. Think about it, son. Use your brain. Don't you know something? Child. I guess I just want the toy. Me, obviously, but why? Child, I don't know. Me, fine. Mental note, abandon the why questions and skip straight to the leading questions. <laughs> Do you think that he is having fun playing with the toy right now? Child, no. <laughs> Me, really? He's not having fun. Then why does he want that toy in the first place? Child, because he's mean. Me, have you ever considered that maybe you are being mean by trying to rip that toy from his quivering little hands? Child, I don't know. Me, what do you know? Child, I don't know. Me, never mind. I wonder how my brilliant child can know absolutely nothing at this moment. Well, I think taking that toy from him while you make your brother would make your brother very sad. Do you like to make your brother sad? Child, I don't know. Me, audible sigh. Child, he makes me sad all the time. <laughs> B, well, I'm getting sad right now with your attitude. <laughs> Pause. Think. What would Paul trip to? Thinking, thinking. Man, I can't stop thinking about that mustache. This isn't working. Let's go straight to the Jesus part. You know, Jesus wants us to love each other. Child, I don't know. Me, I didn't ask you a question. Child, pause. Can I have some fruit snacks? <laughs> Me, no, you can't have fruit snacks. We're talking about the gospel. Jesus loves us and dies for us. He wants you to love your brother too, child. So? <laughs> Me, just give him the toy back. Then I lunge for the toy and the child runs away. I tell him to come back here this instant, threaten to throw the toy in the trash. I recommit myself to turning down spending speaking engagements on parenting. I want to grow as a parent in patience and wisdom and consistency. 
But I also know that I can't change my kids' hearts. I am responsible for my heart, and I must be responsible to teach them the way of the Lord. But nothing guarantees nothing. I'm just trying to be faithful and then repent for all the times I'm not. I have four kids, and besides the Lord's grace, I am banking on the fact that there really are just a few non-negotiables in parenting. There are plenty of ways to screw up our kids. But whether they color during church, for example, isn't one of them. There's not a straight line from doodling in the service as a toddler to doing meth as a teenager. Could it be that beyond the basics of godly parenting, that most of the other techniques and convictions are nibbling around the edges? Certainly, there are lots of ways that good parents make parenting a saner, more enjoyable experience. But even the kid addicted to Angry Birds who just drowned a pack of Fun Dip and is now watching his third Pixar movie of the week, or maybe day, still has a decent shot at not being a sociopath. I remember years ago having a, hearing a line from Alistair Begg quoting another man that went something like this. When I was young, I had six theories and no kids. Now I have six kids and no theories. I must be smart. It only took me four kids to run out of theories. I look back at my childhood and think, what did my parents do right? I watched too many Growing Pains reruns. I played a lot of Super Bowl Tecmo Bowl. I never learned to like granola or my vegetables. But yet, I always knew they loved me. They made me go to church every Wednesday and twice on every Sunday. They made us do our homework. They laid down obvious rules, the kinds that keep kids from killing each other. They wouldn't accept any bad language. And I didn't hear any from them. Mom took care of us when we were sick. Dad told us he loved us. I never found porn around the house or booze or any dirty secrets. We read the Bible. We got in trouble when we broke the rules. I don't remember a lot of powerful heart-to-heart conversations, but we knew who we were, where we stood, and what to expect. I'd be thrilled to give my kids the same. I worry that many young parents are either too adamant about the particulars of their parenting, are too sure that every decision will set their kids on an unalterable trajectory to heaven or hell. It's like my secretary at the church once told me, most moms and dads think they're either the best or the worst parents in the world. Both are wrong. Could it be we've made parenting too complicated? Isn't the most important thing not what we do, but who we are as parents? They will see our character before they remember our exact rules regarding television and Twinkies. I could be wrong. My kids are still young. Maybe this no theory is a theory of its own. I just know that the longer I parent, the more I want to focus on doing a few things really well. Not get too passionate about all the rest. I want to spend time with my kids, teach them the Bible, take them to church, laugh with them, cry with them, Discipline them when they disobey, say sorry when I mess up, and pray like crazy. I want them to look back and think, I'm not sure what my parents were doing, or if they even knew what they were doing. But I always knew my parents loved me, and I knew they loved Jesus. Maybe it's not that complicated after all.